progressive ideas, conversations from schools, and the newest concepts in education. This is the School Leadership Podcast. It's an organisation that's been in existence for over 140 years and was set up by teachers for teachers. You're about to hear from Education Support. Hello and welcome to the School Leadership Podcast with NAHT and NAHT Edge. Very good to have you with us. Sinead McBreity is someone with myriad skills, experience and insight. As Chief Executive of Education Support, She's someone who's worked in financial services and the not-for-profit sector, including a directorship at the award-winning social enterprise Women Like Us. A governor at a primary school in South London, Sinead's worked in organisational development and was a visiting lecturer at Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art. A fervent champion of best practice when it comes to mental health in the teaching profession, Sinead tells her story to James Bowen. Well, delighted to be here, James. Thanks for the invitation. Education support has been around for a long time. We, we have been around for 144 years, set up by teachers for teachers. Uh, and our mission is really to improve the mental health and well-being of the education workforce across all settings. Um, and we do that because we believe that better well-being and mental health leads to better teaching and learning. It's kind of just that simple. Uh, so that's what the organization is about. Uh, and in terms of what we do, well, we work at three levels, I guess, across the education sector. We help individuals uh, with emotional, mental health and, and welfare issues. Uh, so we have a, a helpline. We'll talk about that maybe at the end. Um, but we also offer financial grants to people in distress. So for anyone listening who has, who, who's got staff that they're worried about, who they think are in financial difficulty, our small grants program may be able to help. Uh, and we also provide digital resources online on topics like bereavement or grief or anxiety. There's a lot of, lot of good stuff there for individuals to look at. Um, so that's the individual side. We also work with schools and colleges directly and help them put in place counselling, workplace surveys uh, and facilitated peer support for leaders uh, increasingly is something that we're working on. Uh, and the third thing that we do is really researching the health of the workforce and then advocating for improvement. So uh, we knock on the door of policymakers and try and get them to take this stuff seriously and use it to shape policy. And I suppose I want to pick up on that, that final point you just mentioned there. I, I mean, one of the main reasons I was so keen to talk with you today was really to think about the impact of, of COVID-19 on, on the well-being of of pupils and staff, um, but perhaps we should sort of look before that as well. And, and, and based on the information you've got, what do you know about the, the mental health and the well-being of staff, uh, school leaders and teachers before COVID-19 even hit? Well, we've been researching this for uh, the last four years. We've produced a fairly detailed index tracking the health and well-being. Uh, and what I think we're seeing through that is a plateauing now of uh, what I call the holy trinity of stress, depression and anxiety in the workforce. Um, and where we had seen increased growth year on year this year, even after the first lockdown, when we did the field work, we're seeing that level plateau out. Unfortunately, though, the plateau is at a very high and unsustainable level. So we're seeing uh, educators about three quarters and upwards of educators describing themselves routinely as stressed at work. We have quite a significant increase in the symptoms of poor 
uh, well-being. So things that, that would be indicators that somebody perhaps is going to have an issue with their mental health. Those symptoms have been increasing. Uh, the incidence of anxiety and depression is significantly higher than it is in the rest of the population in the country. Um, and similarly, the well-being of people working in education is materially lower than the general population. So things have stabilized. They haven't got dramatically worse uh, until the middle of, let's say, 2020. I think, you know, in brackets here, I think it's got dramatically worse since. But up to the, you know, the data we have that takes us through to the middle of 2020, we were kind of at a plateau around those things, but clearly unacceptable to have that level of poor health really in the workforce. And what are the, the key factors? I mean, I, I could hazard a guess, but it'd be useful to know the kind of, what are the, the key factors that people cite uh, and have been citing prior to COVID-19 as driving that stress and pressure? Well, you won't be remotely surprised. It is, you know, workload remains right up there as a key issue that's that's affecting people. And I, and I think workload is, is not sort of straightforwardly about the number of hours people are working, though they are on average working. You know, I think we've got, a, 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 you will know better than I do that the extent of overwork, for example, in the senior leader pop population, but that's also true actually across classroom teachers. Um, so that matters. Work-life balance is a big issue where people feel that work actually crowds out the rest of their life, the rest of what they want to do. Um, uh, and then we uh, get into issues like a lack of trust, uh, maybe over demand placed on people by their line managers. I think line management is a really important issue for people. Um, so if you're working in a culture where, which is very target driven, again, people cite the focus on targets as being something that they really, uh, that really contributes negatively to how they feel about themselves and their work. That tension between a target, for example, that is about an outcome where the, the, the teacher doesn't feel that it is contributing to the kind of well-being of the whole child, that becomes very problematic because by and large, people get into the education business because they want to make a difference uh, to children and young people. So anything that takes them away from that has a negative impact on their, their mental health ultimately. And from a school leader perspective, how often and how frequently do people cite Ofsted as a driver? I mean, I'm drawing on personal experience here and uh, perhaps I'm going to reveal too much, but I, I kind of know from my time being a school leader that actually for me, it wasn't the workload so much but it was that constant sort of fear of accountability hanging over you that at any moment an inspector was going to walk in and sort of publicly name and shame and judge you that kind of that constant uh, sort of fear of that hanging in the background is is that common amongst school leaders still do you think absolutely i mean there are at, at, in terms of that that stuff at the level of of our wider education sector there are three things that we think really drive poor mental health and poor well-being and accountability is top of the list you know, I'm a parent of young children. I'm all for accountability. I think it's really important. However, the way in which accountability works, how we go about the job of, of holding schools and school leaders to account for what they're doing with children and young people is at best, I think you'd say unproductive in terms of the tension and the anxiety that it creates. Um, so absolutely, we have a lot of feedback that it really puts a, a disproportionately negative uh, amount of pressure on the shoulders of school leaders in particular and I you know talk routinely to school leaders no more than you do yourself um, and you know the conversations about sleepless nights and anxiety when it comes to the topic of Ofsted are just very commonplace this just isn't good it's not healthy it's not helpful and it feels to me like there is something 
I don't know if it's unique or not, but it feels kind of uniquely personal about accountability when it comes to education. That, as a school leader, you feel very exposed. It's your name on the front of the report. If the inspection doesn't go well, all fingers will point at you. There's that kind of public side to it. And is that unique to education, do you think? Or, or is, is the pressure around accountability particularly acute? Uh, or, or do other sectors feel it just the same, do you think, from your research? I had a conversation with a, a pal of mine who's a, a kind of international expert on regulation uh, about this, you know, kind of casually over a cup of coffee. Um, and his view was that actually there's nothing quite like this in any other field. Um, the degree of uh, the way in which scrutiny and regulation works, the, the as you say, the individual exposure that goes alongside that. Um, and the league table format that, you know, directly or indirectly our inspections play into is problematic. Uh, you know, it is, it, it is, we're starting out in a position where if you are going to evaluate performance on some kind of scale, you're always going to have people who are in the lower half of that. So for a start, you're kind of creating a lot of pressure by simply pushing people into the bottom half. Nobody wants to be there. The whole way that we structure and measure performance and accountability, I think, is different from other sectors. And the way in which, you know, you know, the, the phrase high stakes comes into its own because it makes and breaks careers. And we don't see that. I started my career in finance. You know, there's plenty of successful people who've uh, had difficult encounters with regulators where things have not gone well, where improvement has been required. It hasn't broken their career. It's much more taken in the stride of things. But in education, I think there is a way in which it's blown out of proportion. You know, that's before you even get into the vagaries of how accountability works and, and the fairness that or otherwise that people feel in terms of how they're evaluated, in terms of what goes into making and forming a judgment and the confidence that the people on the receiving end of that have on the process, I think is probably quite important as well, because when you feel unfairly treated, again, that creates a lot of dissatisfaction and internal discomfort that can play out in lots of different ways. We've managed to talk, I think, at least for five minutes now without mentioning COVID-19, which uh, is quite refreshing, actually. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I probably can't avoid it any, any longer. Uh, I'd be interested to know, you kind of alluded to it a bit earlier, but how much of an impact has COVID-19 had on the sort of mental health and well-being of, of school staff, do you think? I've really tried to avoid over the course of the 12 months um, sensationalising COVID and the impact on, on staff because I don't... Uh, you know, we, we've had narratives of, you know, the tsunami of mental ill health and so on and so forth. And, you know, I don't subscribe wholly to that. I think that, that people uh, and children and young people, all of us, we're, we're pretty robust. We do actually have a lot of resilience and we can tolerate uh, a lot of pressure and difficulty. I think, however, we are moving now into a different phase where we had people last year responding to the acute situation they found themselves in around the pandemic and in dealing with you know what is kind of a national catastrophe basically you know stepping in and taking on all sorts of responsibility actually beyond teaching and learning far beyond teaching and learning um, and carrying communities this has been a massive and hugely important set of actions and input from the, the school community across the country. But I think we've got to a place now where that level of demand that we as a society are placing on schools, school leaders and school staff is, 
you know, it's really outstayed its welcome. I don't think that we can continue to, well, I mean, I can say that we, we may continue, but I think the great damage will be done by continuing to place a disproportionate responsibility on the shoulders of the people who run our schools. And I think that the ongoing uncertainty, lack of clarity uh, and confused messaging at, that, that has kind of been a pattern of government communications in itself is really damaging. One of the things that is most problematic for anyone's mental health is uncertainty. And if you have that sense of holding a tremendous responsibility for uh, you know, the school community, the wider community, and actually there is a constant narrative that is uncertain, unhelpful, you know, is this particular new thread on Twitter the way forward or not, it can be very difficult to manage in that. So I think that we've got some quite big themes that, that you know, we can learn from through this, but I think we really do need to learn. And it, it just isn't realistic uh, to imagine that this can carry on and there won't actually be kind of any impact in the long term. I think there will be an impact um, without wishing to catastrophize. I think we do need to step back and look at how we resource the sector to uh, continue to operate in what will be uncertainty for some time to come and how we support school leaders and classroom teachers and the workforce at large to work with this generation of children and young people whose you know, lives in effect risk being defined by this pandemic and its impact on their education. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head there with the issue around uncertainty. I know, you know, from when we speak to members, that that's a, a, a real issue, you know, that late government guidance, confusing government guidance, mixed messages being told one day schools will remain open and then the very next day they're going to be closed. I, I constantly seeing stuff trailed in the press about school policy. I think all of that has absolutely added to the stress and pressure on school leaders. And of course, there's all of the other things, you know, supporting staff with their understandable anxiety, working with parents at this time. And then on top of that, you've got everybody's own, you know, school leaders are human beings as well with their own lives and their own challenges that, that we're, as we're dealing with. And I, I suppose that leads me, I'd, it'd be really nice to talk very practically now and, and give people some solutions, if I want a better word. So I, I, and I want to do that in two ways. I want to talk about uh, school leaders' own mental health and well-being and, and what we can suggest there, but also how they can then look after the well-being of their staff. But but perhaps we should talk about their own well-being. I'm thinking of the kind of the airplane analogy. You know, you put on your your mask when the oxygen comes down before you look after everybody else around you. And for school leaders who are listening, who and I suspect most who have had challenges around well-being and their own mental health, what practical advice uh, can we give them to to start sort of addressing that? Well, I think the you know the advice in lots of ways is is fairly simple. And I think uh, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do, of course, uh, but it's not really rocket science. There's some basic bits of looking after our mental health. I think of it as really mental health hygiene, that if we can incorporate into our daily lives, there is really strong, powerful evidence will make a difference, will help us to stay well for longer or help us to recover from the demands of what's going on on the day-to-day -day basis better. And those things are pretty simple. At taking exercise, and actually we know from our own research, school leaders are quite good at taking exercise as a way of relieving stress, but taking exercise to keep ourselves fit and well, critical, eating well, avoiding too much alcohol and sugar. We know that um, school leaders will turn to both food and drink 
to manage their own discomfort, stress levels, anxiety, depression, and so on in greater numbers, a little, you know, higher numbers than the wider, the wider population would. You know, and I speak from experience here as a, as a hearty drinker of wine and beer, you know, I know, I, I know when we went into the first lockdown, I had to st- sit back and think, hang on, how do I want to, how do I want this to go at home? Am I going to eat cake and drink red wine for as long as this carries on? Or am I going to try and put some boundaries around that? And I think that's a really important conversation for, for all leaders to have with themselves around how am I managing some of those tendencies that might be my go-to as a way to unwind. You know, we all have been in situations where Friday night, you kind of let your hair down and it's a great release uh, at the end of the week. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just being conscious of how, we're u- how we use food and alcohol to um, manage our feelings. I think that's probably the point of distinction. So all of that stuff matters. I think finding points in of time that you can ring fence and boundary to do something for yourself. And that sort of self-care is really critical. And I know that there'll be listeners to this. They'll be thinking, what is the Irish woman going on about? Like, how many hours do you think I have in my day? <laughs> this was brought home to me recently, speaking with someone who used to work with Bill Clinton in the White House and said that Clinton apparently had an hour in his diary every day, which was sacrosanct. It could not be overwritten for anything. War, you know, economic crises, nothing. Um, And he would take himself off down to the White House Library for one hour every day. And that was his, you know, personal time. That was his way of recharging. And I kind of think, you know, if the president of the free world, so to speak, is able to find an hour a day, I can, in my own life, surely manage 15 minutes uh, to do something for myself that will be good for me, that will make me, you know, help me to feel better. And I don't mean feel better in some sort of there, there, pat yourself on the head, but actually energize me, make me, uh, remind me of kind of the fact that I can be a more relaxed person, that I can put down work for an amount of time. And I, I think a lot of us in leadership, and I certainly see it in with, with school leaders, not least because of the volume of hours that they're working, you kind of get in a, in a routine of working very long hours and it becomes really absorbing. And actually then it's really hard to step away from the work and it's really hard to put it down. But actually taking that time and turn not just switch, not just not working, because that you can you can move away from work, but you can still have it still be buzzing around your head really all of the time and in the background while you play with your kids or, uh, you know, have a walk in the park or whatever it is. Finding something that you can completely absorb yourself in is the key here particularly given how intensively we're all working. And if you can be completely absorbed in something else, then that is the best possible way for you to recover from the strain of the day job, if you like. So I think my key advice for people is to take the time to do that, whatever, whatever it is that makes you happy. It doesn't really matter what it is. As long as you can be absorbed in it, you give yourself the opportunity to uh, recover a little bit. And I think a lot of school leaders feel that would be selfish. There is a very strong uh, kind of moral undercurrent to uh, school leadership that sees the need to look after children and young people as the absolute primary concern. And rightly so, I absolutely relate to and understand it. However, there will be a limit to how long you can put children and young people first if you yourself are slowly disintegrating in the background. And so my challenge would be to reframe that and say, if you want to be the best professional you can be and offer the best to the community and the staff and everybody else that you work with, the very first thing to do is to look after yourself. Because if you become ill, 
uh, you're not going to be able to do any of it. And I'm really interested in this idea. You've kind of struck a chord with me there. It, it kind of the idea that the kind of long hour working approach can almost sort of become habitual, if you like. And I, and I kind of look back now on my time as headship and every night without fail, I would, you know, get home late, I'd eat dinner. And then within half an hour, I'd open the laptop back up again and work through to sort of 10, 11 o'clock at night. And when it got to a Sunday morning, it was a case of, right, laptop back on. I kind of have the benefit of hindsight now, two or three years out. And I look back and I think I can see how how bad a habit it was, but also I probably spent a lot of that time doing things that didn't make a great deal of difference. At the time, they felt like the most important thing in the world, and I couldn't possibly not have done them. I look back now and I think I wish I could have spoken to, to myself then and say, hang on, this stuff you're doing in the grand scheme of things doesn't really matter. Um, but this idea kind of the long hour culture, long hour working becoming habitual and almost feeling guilty if you don't. I remember that thinking, yeah. Well, you know, I, I would get an, an email from another head teacher at 10.30 at night and think, well, if they're working at 10.30 at night, I should be if I'm going to be as dedicated as they are. And do you think that habitual long hours thing is, is a real issue? I really do. And I, I speak from personal experience. I think I said it earlier on. I started my career in the city and I was, you know, I was genuinely a workaholic. Like I, I you know, routinely working 90 hour weeks for years. And it's really corrosive, but I think it becomes part of our identity. When it becomes part of your identity, you become quite attached to it. And there is also a hit, you know, from feeling like I'm important. I matter. If my, yeah. if I don't do this, you know, that doesn't, you know, if I don't do this, it leaves a gap and other things can't happen. And there's no, you know, there is a bit of ego in that. And I say that about myself. I'm not judging other people in that. But there was a bit of, you know, I'm so very important that if I don't do this stuff, something awful will happen or be lost or whatever. And actually, you know, there's, again, a lot of good evidence in the literature. Work will expand to fill the time we make available to it. And I don't say that to diminish the extraordinary demands that have been placed on uh, everyone working in schools and in particular school leaders over the past year. I really don't. I, I am, you know in nothing but you know filled with 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 awe really by by what's been accomplished by so many four communities but if we don't draw a boundary the work's going to carry on there there is so much stuff required that it is impossible to get it all done and so my view is you can either you know decide that you don't have a boundary and every waking hour will, will be dedicated to it and there are heads doing that up and down the country there are people who don't see their own kids they are working seven day weeks and their decision by default, if you like, is that they will make every waking hour available to the job. But I think you can make a different decision, which is to say, I will work X hours or I will work you know, in, in this way and I will do what I can do in that time and I'll prioritize and, and you know, be really careful about what I don't do. But I will walk into that with my eyes open and recognize that I'm not going to do everything. So let me be choiceful about what I do do. And let me just accept that I'm not going to get it all done. And in that acceptance, um, you know, that acceptance of imperfection, that acceptance of not being a superhero, there is great release and space to then focus on other stuff because your performance isn't about how many hours of work you knock out or how much stuff you get done. Because you're school leaders, actually your performance is about how you show up for all of the people who depend on you. There's academic evidence in the spades about this, but also any of us who just sit back and think about it, know, recognize it as a truth. You will show up in much better shape for your job if you've had some recovery time, if you've had time with your family, your friends, gone for a walk, climbed a mountain, whatever it is. And in showing up in better shape, you will be a better leader. 
then the tired version of yourself who turns up having done lots, but isn't uh, replenished, isn't having the opportunity to energize. Very true. And I remember someone said to me not so long ago, do you know what? No one has ever laid on their deathbed and said, I wish I'd spent more time working. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps apart from Steve Jobs, maybe there are a few, but I think you know, that when, you, when people talk about that stage of people's lives, it tends to be, I wish I'd spent more time with my family and doing the things I love. So I, that, that kind of perspective as well. And the final thing I guess on this is, I wonder if there's something in this about school leaders at the moment, particularly needing to be kind of cut themselves some slack, uh, be kind of themselves. I, I kind of keep thinking, you know, at the moment, school leaders are steering their schools through a global pandemic. There's no training for that. No one had that on their MPQH. And if you are literally doing that, if you're getting through the day at the moment, going home, coming back in the next day and continuing to steer your school through this most sort of surreal of times almost that it's in itself is enough and kind of just giving yourself credit for doing that and not and not worrying about all the things you're not doing I, I wonder if that kind of being kind to yourself as a school leader is, is important right now well the be kind stuff that whole um idea of self-compassion is again there is really strong evidence in the academic literature that it is not only good for us because we feel better when we've been a bit nice to ourselves, but actually we live longer, we have less illness, um, we are fundamentally happier and then we contribute more. You know, there is a, a huge amount of positivity wrapped up in being kind to yourself and being self-compassionate. And for those of us over a certain age, that isn't reflexive. It doesn't come straightforwardly. Certainly, uh, you know, I can't be the only person in their 40s who was raised thinking the idea of being kind to yourself would be a nonsense. Like, what are you talking about? What a kind of crazy talk is that? You, you know, you look after other people, you do, you do the right thing, you do your job well, you work hard, you give. And I think that's a very prevalent attitude across the education sector. And so we're having to relearn, informed by tremendous evidence that's coming through from psychology, among other, among other fields. We need to relearn and reframe how we see the whole idea of being kind to ourselves. But I think, rest assured, there is fantastic evidence that it's a really good and wise way to be in the world. And I think in terms of cutting slack, James, I think that, you know, I come back to this idea of, as a leader you don't need to get wrapped up in your identity in terms of what you're doing. I think beginning to recognize the effect that you have by being yourself, you know, how you show up really it matters an awful lot. And, and there's increasing evidence that that is actually what's correlated to performance. So, you know, the fact that you're there uh, and the fact that you're there for the people around you is a huge part of uh, getting everybody through this. And if you drop a few things along the way, they really probably don't matter. Let's explore that a bit. Because I said at the beginning, I wanted to talk also about kind of um, how school leaders can and look after the, the well-being and the mental health of their staff. And we've talked a lot about you know, school leaders' own well-being, rightly so. But obviously, a lot of people who get in touch with us at the moment are, are deeply concerned about their staff. Um, they're, they're really worried about the well-being of, of their staff and are asking for advice. Well, how do I go about looking after that as best I can beyond what comes to me you know, instinctively and naturally. What, what kind of advice would you give to school leaders thinking about that, how to nourish, care for, support their staff in, again, what are just you know, the most challenging of times? Well, I think, again, we come back to some simple truisms. It's a bit, you know, there's nothing terribly complex in it. I think what we know and, again, what the evidence shows us is what's most critical here is, is the leadership and the culture, the tone that you set, how you role model 
your behavior through this, the way that you handle your own work-life balance, um, the you know the demands that are placed on you both from the day job, but actually from your own personal domestic setup. You know, all of this stuff really matters. The tone that you set. One of the things that we know from our research is that over half of school in in over half of school workplaces. Staff don't feel that they can discuss their mental health. They don't feel that they could raise an issue of um, extreme stress or an actual mental health issue, uh, health issue that they were experiencing. They wouldn't feel safe in that. And this is true for leaders as well. And leaders don't feel they can share it. They feel that they would be judged, that they would be seen as less than in, in some way if, if this was to, to be the case. And again, this is deep seated in the culture, I think, and we're, we're on a journey to change that. And, and the stigma associated with mental health has changed enormously in the wider environment, but it is slower to change in schools. Uh, and I think that's wrapped up with that part of our identity in, in, in school leadership or indeed in classroom teaching that is about being there for children and young people um, and wanting to be seen as, as, as strong uh, role models in that sense. But from a staff perspective, making it normal to discuss mental health, making it normal to discuss the demand. And this is, you have to get this right and appropriate. I mean, I do it, I do it at work. I'm very open at work about uh, the difficulty I have in juggling homeschooling my young children, for example, or uh, caring for my elderly in-laws on the other side of London or whatever it is. But I, do, I can't tip into, you know, using that as an opportunity to get comfort for myself or have people feeling sorry for me or, or in any way overly dwell or burden people with that. I need to hold it quite lightly, but in making it visible and shareable, I make it possible for other people to discuss the issues that face them. And, and I think that really matters because if people feel that they can't be honest and can't be human in the middle of a pandemic, they're wandering around carrying that stress and tension. So actually, how, the, the, what we role model, how we normalize discussing mental health and well-being is incredibly important. We just talked about self-kindness, but actually compassion and empathy in our engagement with everybody who works in the school is also incredibly important. There will be people up and down schools in the country who are looking at how to get more performance out of the people working in the schools. And I've, I've sat in on conversations about this. And I would say it's it's really looking at the wrong, that's looking at the issues through the wrong end of the telescope. I think if you start there, you don't end up in a great place. But if you start with supporting people to, first of all, feel comfortable in the fact that they are having difficulty getting through a global pandemic and then acknowledging and looking for the opportunities to support them. And of course, in school life, that's very often time because time is such a, a, such a premium in term time for anyone working in a school. Um, but as much flexibility as it's possible to give people, as much control as it's possible to give them about their working lives matters uh, enormously. So I think if nothing else, actually, that's a completely free sort of mindset shift that you can uh, begin as a journey in, in your school if it's not already there. And I think the other thing I would just flag as particularly important is collegiality. Uh, we did some research after the first lockdown to understand what made a difference, what mattered to education staff leaders and classroom teachers, as well as support staff. And collegiality is really the key thing that came through as, you know, people felt appreciated, first of all, by their colleagues and felt appreciated by leaders. And that really matters. You can't do enough of the appreciation stuff uh, because you know, for some of us, getting out of bed is an achievement on some days during this uh, last year, you know. I was say, particularly so at the moment, I think that, that that's more true now than ever, isn't it? 
absolutely. But collegiality, those relationships between staff, that really comes out in the data as incredibly important. And in many schools, particularly bigger schools, there's a lot of isolation now in the secondary sector, maybe more than the primary sector, but there's a lot of isolation creeping into the working experience of staff in schools. And it can be difficult to bring people together in a way that is secure. Um, but anything that you can do to allow people to connect and to foster those relationships between staff, by and large, unless the workplace is really riven with tension, that's going to be an incredibly productive and positive thing. People will experience it positively. So any opportunity to bring those relationships together, I would say, take with both hands. There's lots of other stuff that's important, like checking out those certain roles in the school will be more burdened than others with, you know, emotional stuff at the moment. There's an awful lot of difficulty in our communities and, you know, school staff are often privy to the really unpleasant uh, aspects of that. And then that sits with people. So making sure that they have somewhere safe to turn, you know, to, to have supervision, to have access to counselling, to whatever it is, there are different things that you can do. We can you know, in, in the future, we can make sure that we signpost the support we can offer through NAHT. But that's probably another thing is to just make sure that that those people who are encountering a lot of difficulty and sadness and unpleasantness in uh, their day to day job, have somebody they can talk to or somewhere they can turn to address that. So it doesn't end up sitting inside them and uh, leaving them depleted, actually, at the end of it. And we've talked a lot there. I think, you know, that key message around the cultural change and the culture of an organisation being absolutely critical. I'm just wondering as well, at the kind of really very, very practical level, so as, as a leader or a school that's thinking, right, I want to do something, I want to change something, I want to kind of make a point of we are really going to kind of focus on the mental health and well-being of staff. Where, where schools are doing that really well? Are there sort of practical things is it a case of actually bringing the staff together and talking about this is it having a strategic plan is it having a policy I mean I know obviously you'll go back and say actually the culture is at the heart of it but in a sense that cultural change is hard isn't it are, are there really kind of practical things I could go in next week and say right if we start by doing this then the cultural stuff we can start discussing that does that make sense the really kind of practical <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the reason it's a difficult question to answer is that it, it will be different in different settings. Um, and in some places, it will be providing some uplifting CPD that people can really get their teeth stuck into and feel treats them, you know, like a, a, a thinking professional who wants to learn. And, you know, for some people, even in this context, that's really inspiring. For others, it is going to be, you know, knowing that they can, it being clear that if they need to juggle their working hours and, and try and accommodate all the other demands on them, that there is a mechanism to have that conversation and that where possible that will be supported. And um, that is one of the most effective things, actually. It, it's surprisingly simple, but it remains incredibly uh, effective. And I think another thing that's, again, very simple is to bring together everybody who has some kind of line management responsibility in the school and to have an open conversation about how you would like line managers to um, interact with the people they're supporting uh, and to talk about compassion and to give line managers the permission to be kind because some people hold line management quite heavily and they sort of have a view that it means they need to be very serious and make sure everything gets done like everything must get done and of course we're just talking about how everything cannot get done at the moment 
or we hear horror stories about online surveillance in effect, you know, monitoring exactly what people are doing from their in, in their remote teaching, which is, uh, you know, you could hardly have a more obvious symbol of distrust. And, and that is unlikely to build anyone's morale. But briefing line managers on a kind of taking a more compassionate route and maybe even if all you do is ask them to have a conversation with everyone in who for whom they're responsible, you know, a genuine conversation about how are you and really how are you? Uh, and is there anything that you need? Is there stuff that we could do to make this easier? And try and get a feeling. Obviously, if you ask that question, you also need to boundary it with, you know, we have to be realistic because we still are delivering both on-site and remote provision. And it's not like we can magic up a whole heap of extra time or anything or extra resource because we're also probably going bankrupt at this point in time. And um, but within the realms of what's possible, are there things that we can do? And I think when there is a kind of intentional going out to across the school community to ask those questions, I, I think that's often very well received, uh, particularly if people feel they can say something, uh, it be listened to. And as long as they understand that there is a limitation and a kind of natural boundary uh, of realism as to what's possible. They may not have anything dramatically different that they would ask for, but just being asked can be very powerful. And I think the other thing I'd say to line managers in this imaginary briefing about compassionate line management would be to um, ask them to work to appreciate everyone uh, who they're responsible for as well, to actively go out and seek opportunities to appreciate. Um, we, we are all, you know, we've just alluded to, this is a particular particularly tiring time and as we all get tired and a bit despondent we're still in winter this is not going away it's going you know I'm not going to go on a summer holiday or where, wherever it is that our thoughts are we're not at our best we're not we're certainly not at our most grown up there's a little bit of child in all of us in in moments around this and actually appreciation you can't over you can't overstate how important it is and line managers are often so busy getting tasks done making sure that the you know, the online resources are uploaded and that every family has been communicated with and that we have some sense of who's going to be on site next week and all the rest of it. There isn't time to appreciate. But actually, if we can turn that upside down and start with the appreciation stuff, those are really small actions. But culture is only a collection of small actions and behaviours that we make normal in our schools and, and workplaces. Um, so I think to do anything, I would suggest starting with those to make just embed those little practices as part of the day to day. And you said something in your answer there that really triggered a thought for me and that bit about sort of as leaders having to be realistic as well um I, I, you know obviously the importance of listening and responding but being realistic I, I remember someone once said to me when i was a school leader said look you cannot be held personally responsible for other people's happiness um, and I, I think they said that because i was one of those people who would worry constantly if any member of staff was unhappy and wanted to try and fix that um, and i think the point they were making is look there are things you absolutely have a responsibility for and you and you know you've got to create the best atmosphere you can and, and give people the best conditions to work in but if people aren't happy that's not necessarily your fault as, as the leader and there's there's a sort of fine line there I guess really isn't there I think the line becomes a bit more blurred with remote working because where does home start and work end is is problematic for for those that are are working fully remotely but I think that there is in the midst of all of this you know well-being and mental health isn't about trying to be a savior and uh and and and, and helping people we we all and that includes every member of our staff teams have personal responsibility for the choices that we make the workplace 
I, you know, I would like to imagine we can get to a, a world where workplaces are designed to be healthy at the outset and our practices and our line management practices and so on are really supportive of that. But you're absolutely right. You know, the most wonderful workplace in the world and you can still have people in it who are unhappy. Um, and, and recognizing personal responsibility without judging people, I think is important. You know, it's easy to look sometimes at people and think, well, if they did this, that and the other, they'd be a lot happier. But actually, our job isn't to judge them either. But your point of just accepting that there is a limit to what you can do as the leader is, is hugely important. And, you know, maybe when things get a little bit less crazy, we can bring support and CPD in to help people think about the choices they make, not in a, an evangelical, now I'm going to you know, turn you into some kind of yoga, mindful, crazy person who's going to go off and, and evangelically uh, convert the rest of the school, but, but much more just to allow us the space to reflect on the choices that we make uh, and to see if, there are, 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 is there, if there's anything that can be done to support some maybe healthier choices, not least because not everybody understands that their choices contribute negatively to how they feel. Um, but in this moment, all you can do is do the best you can do in the workplace and, and accept that that's not going to address it for everybody. Let's finish now by, and I want to ask you a bit about if, if there's someone listening to this who is particularly suffering at the moment, or they know someone in their, their school who is, what sort of sources support are you as an organization able to offer? What resources are out there? I'm just thinking, you know, there will be potentially someone listening to this who's just going through an incredibly tough time at the moment who needs a bit more than probably the kind of the top level advice we've been able to talk about in the short time we've got and need something a bit more specific. Where, where can they go and where could they access that, Sinead? My kind of primary recommendation here is to use the helplines that are in existence for you. We, as you know, James, we work with NAHT to provide a helpline for school leaders, which is 0800 917 4055. And if you're worried about other people in the school, we also have the education support helpline, which is open to anyone in any role in education on 08000. 562561. Uh, and you know, use those helplines. There are qualified counselors on the other end of the phone who are able to have a conversation. And the conversation doesn't have to be, you don't have to be in crisis to phone those lines. The conversation can be, you know, I don't feel brilliant. I don't really know why, or, you know, I feel like I should be a lot more energetic about it, but I just can't seem to get, you know, don't worry, I've lost my mojo. Um, you know, they don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to be in a grisly place to use these services. And actually, again, there's fantastic evidence that tells us having a conversation early on about how you feel with somebody you trust or somebody who is a, a good person to have a conversation with um, can make the difference between a, an issue being dealt with relatively straightforwardly or being left and actually turning into something far more debilitating uh, over time. So I think my my advice really is have a conversation. And you and if you don't want to talk to counsellors, that's fine. Find somebody who you trust, who's able to listen, uh, who will validate you, uh, and maybe be might be able to to kind of help you work through some next steps you can take. But know that there is no there's no shame and no embarrassment in speaking to a counsellor. You know, we do have a quite a British attitude about this stuff and there's still a lot to learn. But a, a good counselling conversation basically helps you understand what's happening inside yourself. And the reason a, an, an external conversation helps is because we have so many blind spots personally about what's happening. And we, we kind of get confused about causality. 
Um, we think that it's happening because of this, but actually if you unpick it, it's not. But you can't see the wood for the trees on your own. Having a conversation with somebody else is a fantastic way to get some perspective about what's happening inside yourself and then find some good uh, next steps to take to, for, to support you with whatever is most beneficial at that point. And I know from the conversation we had before we started recording this that that you're um, developing a whole series of, of new resources as well, which will, will all be available on the website at some point. Is that is that right? That's right. I mean, I think I said a little bit earlier, we've already got some really uh, good uh, video content on there about topics like bereavement and anxiety and grief. Um, not just grief, actually, in terms of bereavement, but there have been a lot of people grieving for the lost way of life. And I think we'll see another wave of that as we go through this year. So many of us were hanging on, imagining that once 2020 was over, it, it would all go away. And actually, you know, that's not going to be the case. Um, and the grief for the old way of life can, you know, is a very real thing. So we've got some quite, you know, really good, helpful resources on the website already. But as, yeah, exactly as I was saying, we will over the next kind of six months be developing a whole raft of additional stuff that we will make available and we'll promote through NAHT. We'll make sure that, that your members are very aware of that uh, as they come online. Sinead, thank you so much for, for spending the time today to sort of talk through that practical advice and to give us the sort of the benefit of your expertise. It's, it's very much appreciated. Thank you. My pleasure, James. Thanks a million and take care. Well, the conversation you've just heard was between Sinead McBrearty and James Bowen. Their website has some tremendously supportive pages like helping you, helping your staff and helping others. They're at educationsupport.org.uk. Educationsupport.org.uk. Thank you, as always, for listening to the School Leadership Podcast. All future episodes of this podcast from NEHT and NEHT Edge can come directly to you by subscribing with Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Anchor. And we're always very keen to hear what you have to say about the podcasts, if it's a suggestion for a future guest or any kind of feedback. If you're able to take a few minutes to write an online review, that would be much appreciated. NAHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nahtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.naht.org.uk forward slash join. Our Twitter accounts are the following at NAHT Edge and at NAHT News. We'll speak next time. From NAHT and NAHT Edge, the School Leadership Podcast. Thank you.